Titans. Had to clap for myself. Uh, just one clap, though. Uh, hey, everyone. I'm Chris. Well, we're about to start a new series, but before we do, I just want to um, want to celebrate somebody uh, here today. And uh, did you know it was Patrick's birthday yesterday? Isn't that great? He's, it's amazing. It's amazing. He turned uh, 53 years old. Okay, wrong? Okay, am I wrong? Anyway, anyway, uh, and so you had a bir- you were out for your birthday yesterday, and yet you came up here and you cranked that out for us today. That is like, wow. So good for you. I mean, so to the birthday boy who's like, yeah, fill out your connect card. Like, I just want to say that was awesome, man. And we love you so much. And we're so happy. I didn't say it was rough. Did you say it was rough? I can see you're like, it's just a lot. It's a lot to do in 24-hour period, and I appreciate that. But happy birthday, man. Happy another journey around the sun, and we love you, and uh, keep up the good work. All right. Well, today we're going to begin a new series called A Faithful Presence, and the series is called A Faithful Presence, How to Become a Non-Anxious Presence in an Anxious World. And here's why I'm excited. Here's what this series is about. God calls us to be a faithful presence. He calls us to seek the prosperity and the health of our city. He invites us to to radically include people that feel left out into the family of God. He invites us to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, the single mother. And when we do this, we're reflecting how good God is to the outside world. Like when we do the stuff that we know is good for the world, people look at that and they go, God, we trust God, we're interested in God, and we're trying to understand who God is because of the way you reflect through a faithful presence. Now, with that in mind, this series is a lot like an oxygen mask. Okay, so when you're on an airplane and you get to your seat and you get there early and you hope that the people passing by you on your commercial flights, unless you fly private, does anyone here fly private? I would love to speak with you afterwards if you fly private. So you're on your commercial flight and your people are passing you and the guy makes the eye contact and you're like, oh, okay, so I got to sit by a person. And they sit down and then the, the, the flight attendants get up and they do their little song and dance like we've got seatbelts and oxygen masks, things for you to use. And they like sing a song and dance and the video's going in front of you. They show you how to use a seatbelt in case you haven't been in a car for the last 60 years, oh, lift up on the buckle. And so you've got all that going on, and then eventually they get to the part with the oxygen masks. And what are the rules for the oxygen masks? And does anyone know? When they say, talk about the oxygen mask, what do they talk about? What do they say? Thank you, KJ, for coming through right there. That's right. You put your own oxygen mask on first before you put on somebody else's. This series is supposed to be like an oxygen mask. This is the pre-work. This is the work that we have to do internally if we want to have an impact externally. And here's why you need to put on an oxygen mask. Because the anxiety around us, in our society, in our city, in our politics, in our news media, is completely toxic completely toxic. And if we continue to consume the toxic fumes of anxiety, 
then I don't think we're going to be able to make a difference. We're not going to be able to help anybody. I don't want that. You don't want that. We don't want that. So we're, t- we're going to talk about, over the next four weeks, about how to put on your oxygen mask because we have to detach from some of the anxiety that's around us. And I can explain to you why that's important. Now, um, there is a book by a guy named Steve Cuss. Uh, it's called Managing Leadership Anxiety. I had a uh, chance to read this this year. I actually had a chance to hear him speak. And then, like, he said something, and I had a chance to talk to him for a few minutes after he spoke. Steve Cuss is based out of Denver. And he wrote this book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. And he titled it Managing Leadership Anxiety to the chagrin of his publisher. The publisher wanted him to rename the book uh, Eliminating Leadership Anxiety. And the reason he refused to do that is because he said it's impossible to eliminate anxiety. There's always going to be some level of anxiety in your life, so the best you can do is learn to manage it and learn to manage it in the way that God teaches us to manage it. And so he wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety, and he has this really interesting idea in there, and it's called the anxiety gap. Now, the anxiety gap is basically this. The anxiety gap is anytime something needs to be done, but we don't know what to do. Like we feel the tension that something must be done. We have to do something, but we don't know exactly what we're supposed to do. Something needs to change, but we just don't know what we're supposed to do. And this is why the anxiety gap is so frustrating. The anxiety gap is frustrating because we feel stuck. We feel stuck. You know you got to do something, but we don't know what to do. I mean, have you ever contemplated, uh, have you ever contemplated some of society's issues? environmentalism issues, racism, xenophobia, mass shootings, and have you ever felt stuck when you're thinking about those issues? Or let me phrase it a different way. Let me ask it a different way. Have you ever felt stuck because other people who exist in the world have other thoughts and ideas about what should be done, and they're different than other people's ideas, and so no one seems to agree on what to do? And it's like you can, you can like see the issues uh, you can think of any issue in America, and it's because we're polarized in so many ways, and we don't, because what happens when we're, we can't agree, we feel stuck. That's what happens um, when governments get stuck. They just kind of continue to do what? What do they do? When we feel stuck, how do we try to get out of stuckness? Does anyone know? Think about it. We do more of the same. That's actually what happens. When you or feel stuck, people sometimes do more of the same. This is what governments do, this is what people do. And we hope something will change, but really, we just end up doing more of the same and, and more and more entrenched it goes, which causes more of the anxiety. Let me give you an illustration. Once upon a time, when I was younger, imagine a 23-year-old me, like 2% body fat. And, uh, and I, I used to drive a red, fire engine red, Honda Civic, two doors, only two doors, it was a manual, so that's stick shift for uh, other people. And it also did not have power steering. And I, I remember I used to drive this and text people and eat a cheeseburger and like do the thing. And I was like, so felt like I was like, I, I think I should, I'm going to die. I got to stop doing that. So I used to drive this Honda Civic and it was a manual transmission. It didn't have power steering. Now I want you to imagine me taking this uh, off-roading, because that's the kind of 23-year-old it was. Yeah, you know what a Civic is? That's a city car, but let's take this off-roading, all right? So I'm off-roading, and I'm, like, going through some mud, and it's really wet, thick mud, and I get stuck. Uh-oh. So th- just think about me in that moment. What, what do you think I should have done? I should have done something different than I did. What did I do? 
I put it in first gear and I slammed on the gas. And the mud's flying and I think I'm making progress. I'm like, yeah, ha ha, I'm awesome. And I'm not making progress because, wait, I feel stuck. So I put it in neutral or park or whatever you do. And I get out and, oh no, mud's everywhere. And I'm actually deeper. So now I'm starting to get a little anxious. So I go back in the car and I put it in gear. I kind of slam it on the gas even more, keep spinning the thing. And I repeat this process over and over and over again. And the more I go, the more times I spin my tires, the more and more entrenched I get, the more anxious and frustrated I get, and the cycle gets worse. So by the end of this, I am deep in the mud and I can't get out. I now have to call for help. Here's what we know to be true in most of history. Anxious decisions are bad decisions. Anxious decisions are bad decisions. And the decisions you and I make when we are under pressure or anxious, generally lead to bad strategies and they end up not working out for us. And when you're anxious and you're trying to make the world a better place, it doesn't always work out because we end up doing more of the same. And when you're anxious, one of the best things we can do is learn, is learn to, where, to figure out where anxiety exists in us first. And when we learn what anxiety is and where it is, we can learn to detach from it and we can learn to become a non-anxious presence so that we can think differently. Say if I was in that car and I wasn't so anxious and I kept doing the same thing over and over again, and if I was calm, my emotions were calm, I may have found a different solution. I may have offered something called uh, second-order change or a reversal, something we'll talk about in the coming weeks, but I didn't do that, so it got worse. Okay, um, so, so we need to learn uh, where anxiety exists. So I've, I've explained that like the anxiety gap is created, right? And you need to figure out how to uh, be aware of that. Where does anxiety exist? Well, Steve Cuss talks about the four places where anxiety exists. And the first one is this. This is the space inside of you. The space inside of you. This is when we feel anxious about the future, or we feel anxious about our government. We feel anxious about what the Supreme Court has to say, or we're anxious about money, or whether the person loves us back as much as we love them. The anxiety that's within us. The second space is between you and the other. You and the other. This is when we experience tension between you and another person and you have a level of reactivity. Have you ever watched a, a, a pair of people, maybe even a couple, one gets anxious and the other one responds to the other's anxiousness and it builds into this thing and you're like, this is really weird. Like they're off on a tangent that's super unhealthy. And so what happens is when one person has anxiety, they can actually put that pressure and anxiety if that other person chooses to receive that anxiety. And, or that pressure or that anxiousness. It can just cause, some, it can cause a, a couple or a, between you and another person. Maybe if you're married or in a relationship, maybe the person said something and then you reacted and then they're reacting to your reaction. You've been there and that's how fights happen. Um, or other things, breakups, all the things. The third space that Cuss talks about is the space inside the other. The space inside the other. This is, um, do you ever like, see someone and you're like, man, they look anxious. You know that they're carrying something inside of them. You don't know exactly what they're thinking. You can't actually know what people are thinking. You can ask someone what they're thinking. 
But this is, the, this is the anxiety that exists in them, not you. The fourth space is the space between others. That's the tension you feel when you walk into a situation or you walk into like a room and you've clearly stepped on a mood. You're like, oh, there's a, there's a vibe in this room and it's not a good vibe. Have you ever been there? Where it's like, there's, some, there's an anxiety here. The largest form of room anxiety I've ever experienced uh, is at a college football game with 100,000 fans and the home team is not winning. You can feel the anxiety of the room. And it's like, I can't believe he didn't ca- throw the, he laces out when you're kicking the ball. And it, the stress, and especially in the Midwest where your entire identity is built on your sports teams because it's cloudy and there's nothing to do. You know, for example, another example, when you read a story about Republicans and Democrats and they're making anxious statements towards one another, that would be an example of the space between others. So that's what I just described. Those are the four areas where anxiety can exist. It can exist in you. It can, it can exist between you and somebody else. It can exist just in that other person. And it can exist in the whole system. Just reflect on your life, the closest people you know, and just on a societal level, where do we see anxiety? It's like literally almost everywhere. And I like these. I like these four ways that CUS provides because it helps to give us a framework to know, like, is this my anxiety? Is this something that I'm experiencing? Or is this something that this person is experiencing, and am I required to take on their anxiety? Or if there's anxiety like, you know, like in a group of people about what we should do about this policy or that policy, am, am, I, am I to take on that anxiety? Or do I need to be differentiated? And when we learn to understand anxiety, that is the first step to putting on an oxygen mask. Because as we know, anxiety uh, prohibits us from seeing clearly what we need to do. The good news is that in the scriptures, we have an example of Jesus doing this. We have an example of Jesus showing us how to begin to do this, and he actually provides us with a reason we can trust him. And in Matthew 16, Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen to him. And this causes a little bit of stress. So in Matthew 16, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus, pause there, Jesus tells us this super cool plan to go and die. And this immediately triggers anxiety in the disciples, and I'm going to show you why. In the verses we just read, it doesn't explain it, but I'll show you why it triggers in a second. The disciples could not be happy about this. If someone comes to you and goes, here's my plan to die, what's that going to do to you? You're going to feel a little something in your gut. And they did, because you know what? Death makes us anxious, and death made the disciples anxious. And this is an example of the anxiety that exists in others. Jesus says something, and all of a sudden, in the system, there's a wave, a ripple of anxiety, of like, oh no, death, that's bad. How do we know that there was anxiety in the system? Well, because good old Peter, one of the apostles, one of the 12 disciples, he gets up and he does something about it. He pulls Jesus aside, and this is what he says. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. When we are under pressure, when we are anxious, when we are tired, when we feel threatened, our human tendency is to depend on our own strength rather than to depend on God's. And when you look at Peter's words through the lenses of what we just talked about, through the anxiety gap, it really starts to be obvious. You can actually feel the anxiety of Peter. You can actually experience his anxiety. He's experiencing anxiety. And it's an example of the space inside the other. And he says to Jesus, stop it. Don't talk that way. Jesus, you're way off here. You know what? I'm not going to let this happen to you. I'm feeling anxious in this moment, and here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. Jesus, I got your back. So Peter, thinking that he's done a good job and that Jesus is about to thank him and be like, oh, thanks for standing up to me. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, Jesus does respond. Let's see what he writes. Let's see what he says. So Jesus turned to Peter and said, no, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't say it like that. I'm sure he said it with love. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Uh, first of all, it doesn't feel good probably to be called Satan. I know I would not feel good if uh, the Son of God was like, hey, Chris, you're Satan today. <laughs> I don't think that would feel good to me. But what does he do? This is hyperbole for you are not on mission. He's not actually calling him Satan. He's, it's hyperbole for him uh, for you're not on mission. But secondly, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is refusing to make a bad decision based on Peter's anxiety. And the thing about Jesus is that he made his decisions based on his calling and his principles. And he did not make his decisions based on the anxiety or pressures of how other people think about his decisions. He didn't really necessarily, he heard people, but he didn't always, he didn't make those decisions based on how other people were feeling about it. And Jesus knew that anxiety leads to bad ideas. Peter offered Jesus a bad idea because he was anxious. And you see, Jesus knew that Peter's biggest issue wasn't death. Jesus knew that if he did what Peter had wanted him to do, that Jesus would not have been able to fulfill his destiny. If Jesus had allowed Peter to save his life, Jesus could not have completed his mission. And what is Jesus' mission? Jesus' mission is to rescue the hearts of men and women by coming to earth, living a perfect human life, and then dying on the cross in place for our sins. That was his mission. And three days later, he showed that he was on mission by rising from the dead. And if he had caved to Peter's anxiety, he would have never accomplished his mission. And Jesus had to. He had to reject the anxiety. He had to reject it. He had to get rid of that anxious energy from Peter. So let me ask you a personal question. Where do you feel anxious pressure from others? 
that could actually keep you from fulfilling your destiny. And what I'd like to suggest, whether it's a relationship or just pressure from people, what I'd like to suggest is that you pause. That you pause long enough to ask yourself, if I give in to this anxiety from somebody else, will this help or will it hurt my calling? Will it prevent or will it propel me toward my destiny? So Jesus goes on to say this, and here's the whole key. The whole key to everything. And I can see most of you are taking furious notes, so here's the key. Uh, in Matthew 16, verse 24, he, Jesus says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, the traditional way to read these verses is that Jesus, when he calls people to follow him, it's going to be a hard road. It's going to be a hard life. Narrow is the road, he says. He has all these illustrations, and we're going to talk about them in the coming weeks. It's sometimes difficult to be a Christian, and that is so true, and you need to remember that. But also, there's a second thing that Jesus is doing here, and this is the key part. Peter is anxious because he's trying to save his own life, and he's trying to save the life of Jesus. And Jesus says, your anxiety... Your need to control this situation, Peter, your need to, on behalf of the other 11 disciples, your need to fix the situation, that's coming from inside of you because you feel that you need to control the situation. That problem, that injustice, that just, just because you feel it, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. Your need to control the situation here, whether it's personal or whether it's societal, that can actually lead you to a bad decision. And please make sure you hear, I want, I want you to hear this, I want you to hear this. This is what Jesus means when he says you need to die to yourself. You see the verse see where he says, unless they deny themselves, he says, and he says deny yourself. Um, when Jesus says this, when he says you need to deny yourself, when we're trying to take control of a situation, when we're trying to impose our best ideas on a situation, Jesus is saying that is your flesh talking. That's you talking. That's something that comes from the earth. That's not something that comes from above. And denying yourself and taking up your cross means that we have to die to the anxious ideas that are just as an extension of your need to control. You have ideas that are not good because you feel like you need to control that situation. Jesus says you got to die to it. You have to deny that. And Jesus says, in, in, in return, in, instead, he says, trade that. Trade that and invite him in to trust him first, to yield our desire to control. Yield it over to him, to trust him, to follow him. And he says, this is the basis of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Look, I don't know where you are or what you came in here thinking or feeling today, but I'm inviting you right now to search your heart because Jesus is presenting a fork in the road for you and for me. And just as he said to the disciples, he says the same thing to you and me. If your big idea for the world, if your best idea that you're publishing on social or telling your friends or your big idea for your friend uh, that they need to change their life, if it is built on the foundation of your need to control, if it is fueled by your anxiety connected to your need to control, it will lose. He says there, he says, anyone who seeks uh, to save their life will lose it. 
but anyone who chooses to lay down their life to follow me will find it. They'll find it. And the good news is that Jesus has done everything necessary to free you from the tyranny of the need to control anything and your anxiety around it. And Jesus offers us a new operating software that allows us to be free from the grips of anxiety. When we trust Jesus, when we trust in the saving work of Jesus, when we choose to make a decision based on calling and principle, not just what other people think about it, you are freeing yourself from the grips of the things that worry you, from the things that keep you up at night. And you are in a perfect position to do something that may actually matter. And as a church, if we were to collectively put on our oxygen mask to detach ourselves from the anxious systems of the world and other people, if we were to learn to manage our anxiety, we can better determine how to actually make an impact in our city. Here's what the world needs. And here's where I want you to be excited. And this is what most of the churches in Los Angeles are aiming at right now this morning. Like they're trying, there's a pastor up there just trying to point towards the same thing. Here's what our world needs. Our world doesn't need our vision for the future. Our world needs God's vision for the future. And here's what is God's vision God's vision for the future is no more war. That there would be peace. That people, there's like a verse where people would take their swords and beat them into plowshares to make crops because you don't need weapons anymore. There, it, the, the future that God wants is a world with no more gun violence, no more mass shootings. A world where vulnerable women are protected and children are cared for. It's the world that needs the kingdom view that racism and xenophobia and people who are different than us, that doesn't, that doesn't, no one thinks that way anymore because God God's kingdom has come. It is the new heaven and the new earth. That is what we're called to be. And the scriptures say that Christians ought to care about these things. And the scriptures say that we have a responsibility to do something about these problems. And the scriptures say the best way to do that is to lean into God's future. His big, bright, beautiful, and coming future. And as Christians, we are commanded to live in light of the reality that we know and to proclaim the freedom that God brings. And we need to also walk the talk by actually engaging in these very important issues. To follow Jesus doesn't mean you get to sit in the stands. To follow Jesus means you get to play the game. We have to walk the talk. So that's what our world needs. What does our world not need? Our world doesn't need more anxious, knee-jerk reactions. I've had enough of average decision-making. I've had enough of anxiety-driven decisions that lead us to more entrenchment. The world needs Christian men and women who are willing to embrace the message of Jesus, but also reject the short-term anxiety that comes with it. Even if this, you know, in Christians, we need to be able to pause long enough to understand how to make non-anxious decisions based on calling and principle, even if that triggers short-term anxiety in other people. Are you following me? Do you understand? And so, I mean, think about, you know, here's what I... 
the world needs, I mean, the world actually needs us to put on an oxygen mask. And we have to put ours on first if we want to actually help other people. So here's what you should do. You can't help others until you've helped yourself. You have to do it yourself. You have to learn how to do this. You can't change the world unless you put on your oxygen mask. You must absolutely detach yourself from the anxiety that others try to put on you, from the anxiety that you see in the culture, in the media. It must be detached. You need to learn to recognize the four spaces and when they're happening. And we need to learn to pay attention to what's bubbling up underneath for you or you between you and others. And the way I like to do this, uh, the way I'm learning to do this, I'm not an expert, but like sometimes, um, so Tara and I meet every week, and sometimes I'll just talk about the anxiety I'm experiencing with her. Not in an anxious way, like to put it on her. Like, I'm anxious about this. I go, here's how I'm experiencing it. Um, here's how I'm experiencing this right now. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I, th- I would just like to name it. And sometimes just naming what you're feeling with somebody in a detached way, she goes, oh, that's not at all what's happening, and this and that and the other. And what did that do? That prevented me from mani- me- making meaning with somebody that I didn't have to and putting ourselves in a reactive and reactive uh, state of mind. We must learn to recognize the four spaces. We need to learn to figure out what's bubbling up in other people. And we need to kind of uh, understand where it might be bubbling up in the systems, whether that's in our government, whether that's in our lawmakers, whether that's like on, in culture in certain subgroups or some of the tribalism that we see. And we've got to learn to pause long enough to be able to pay attention to what's happening to us emotionally, individually, and also corporately, what's going on below the surface. And here's what I know. Becoming a non-anxious presence doesn't start out there with you. It actually starts, like, first, like, with me. Like, I've got to start, right? And when you go out and you leave here, don't expect everyone to be non-anxious and be like, you need to stop being so anxious. It starts with you. And when you develop the calming presence that comes from the power of Jesus and the calming presence that shows you how to make decisions based on principle and calling, you will start to emanate a non-anxious presence and you'll be able to make better decisions. Look, this is hard to hear, but I have to tell you, you are not responsible for other people's anxiety. You are not responsible for other people's anxiety. The only thing you're responsible for is managing your own anxiety. And when it comes to the anxiety that's just in the other person, that's actually none of your business. What someone else is thinking, that's between them and God. That is a sacred space between them and God. And you spending energy worrying and trying to guess what someone else is thinking about something will only make you anxious and you're taking on anxiety that you don't have to take on. That's none of your business. What happens inside of someone is actually between them and God. So do only what only you can do. Manage your own anxiety. Turn to the Lord. Welcome him in and put on your oxygen mask because it's time to fly. Amen? All right. Why don't we all stand? Uh, we're going to sing one more song, and as we do, um, if you could put the uh, slide of the four, can you put that slide of the four? Um, I, I think some of you are experiencing anxiety in the first one inside of you, and you're ex- I think one, two, and four 
are applicable. Let's skip number three, because like I said, it's none of your business, <laughs> right? What that person's thinking is none of your business. But what we can control is the problem you're having with somebody else, the problem you're having internally, and the problems that you're seeing out there in the world. And I don't know which one speaks to you the most, but I'm gonna, we're going to pause. I mean, you can play gently in the background, not to m emotionally manipulate, but you can play gently in the background uh, as we wake our way. To, like, you know, let's just call it what it is. Um, I'm gonna, let's just take a moment and think about one, two, and four and ask God, God, is, is there one of these where you want to speak to me um, about a, a piece of anxiety? So let, let's just pause. And so ask, so God, is there one of these things that sticks out that you want me to see? Maybe he'll bring someone to mind. I'm going to do the same thing. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here as we stare at these pictures. God, bring to mind what you want us to see. Help us to hear from you, Lord. So we welcome you. I want to pray over you. Would you, if you want to experience uh, something from God, would you be willing to open your hands? Can you, so I could pray for you. And so, uh, God, I, um, I pray for those that are in group number one, that they are experiencing anxiety inside themselves. And I ask God that you would come in the power of Jesus and you would break that, whatever it is. That you would cause them, the person, that you would cause the person to turn to you, to trust you, that they would release that anxiety to you. God, I ask that you would show them the calling and the principle that they should build their life on. Break the power of that anxiety. Uh, for those that are experiencing uh, reactive anxiety between them and another person, God, I ask that you bring healing. And God, I ask that you would bring a healthy spiritual detachment, that you would give them the ability to zoom out on their circumstances and see what you're actually doing. And I pray for those of us who are just really overwhelmed by what we see in the world or the anxiety in, our, in the system. God, I ask that you would show us what to do, that you would help us to detach from it and cling to you to better know what to do. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Do work in us. We're going to sing a song. If there's something in particular that you would like me, I will be up here to pray for you, or one of our leaders can pray for you. Uh, we're happy to do that. And as always, if you're experiencing... Uh, bodily pain or something in your body, we always pray for healing here. We believe that God heals. So let's sing together. Continue to work through whatever God's put on your heart and mind, and I'm happy, and our leaders are happy to pray for you in the front. Let's worship one last time together.